The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a call on tech stocks, a very painful part of the market this year. Barron's Deputy Editor, Alex Ewell, is my guest today. He doubles as our tech editor, and hopefully he can explain what's ailing this market and where to find bargains. Hi, Alex. It's so good to have you back on Barron's Live. Hey, Lauren. Uh, yeah, this is a this is a very uh, good time for this call. I suppose it's both kind of for us the be- the best of times to be a Barron's uh, journalist and and the hardest of times. Well, the hardest of times to be an investor, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. But no shortage of news. So why don't we start with the big picture? The Nasdaq turned up a short while ago today. That to me feels like short covering. I don't see the fundamental reason for it, given this steady sell-off in the Nasdaq and everything else. What's your take on things? Yeah, like each day is becoming a story unto itself in a way. And unfortunately, the story seems to continue to end the same way, right, regardless of how it starts. So yeah, when we were talking, when we started thinking about, you know, the call this morning, the Nasdaq was up, I think as much as one and a half percent. Maybe it was a little bit of short covering. Maybe it was some thoughts that we could move on, you know, the peak inflation idea was taking hold. Um, But here we are by at noon, and the Nasdaq's now down one percent. Um, the whole market, the S&P is down a little bit more, actually. So NASDAQ right now is outperforming a little, but we've seen this before. And by the end of the day, you know, it doesn't seem unreasonable that we could have another one of these one, two, three percent declines for the NASDAQ. I mean, that's just how crazy it's been. Um, so, um, you know, I will if right as of now, the NASDAQ is going to be down. It might just break the 30 percent um, mark from its uh, November high, you know, that feels fairly significant. The S&P 500, if it keeps at this rate, I think will be pretty close to entering a bear market. It'll have been down 20% from its January high. So you do still have kind of that delta, right? The, the, the broad market's down 20%, the NASDAQ's down 30%. Um, I think we've been, that's that's sort of held that difference. So to give a sense of um, how much worse NASDAQ is faring, at least on an absolute basis. That you know, Alex, I keep thinking of that old Wall Street expression, they never ring a bell at the top, but they also never ring a bell at the bottom. Yeah. And we're- One of these days we'll get there. I, I think so. And obviously the question I feel like that everyone is saying is, so when do tech stocks become a buy again? We can talk a little bit more about that. I wish I had, I wish I had the answer. Um, but uh, there, there are all of these just symbolic things going on in the market right now. One of them I noticed, um, it's actually our top story on Barron on, on the website right now, is the fact that Apple is no longer the most valuable company in the world. And it's almost you know telling what has been passed by, but Saudi Aramco, um, which is now I think got a market value of 2.4 trillion. Apple has fallen to about 2.3 trillion. It was almost, I can't, I'm trying to remember now, it was definitely pushing the 3 trillion mark. I'm trying to, I don't think it ever cracked that. But uh, so for Apple, which had been held, holding up decently, 
even that's not working particularly well right now and it's down about 20 percent um from uh year to date i don't know how valid the comparison is with saudi aramco which is not available to u.s investors and it's also very thinly traded yeah but the fact that apple was pushing three trillion and is now down to 2.3 that speaks to the pain out there yeah and that and then if you're an investor that feels pretty if you're a tech investor that decline actually feels pretty good right now right compared to and we can talk more about this but compared to what a lot of the hedge funds have been holding and they're down upwards they were betting on those sort of sexier hotter newer stocks that are down what 40 anywhere from 40 percent to 90 percent so right we've been thinking about apple as sort of the epitome of stability yes yes maybe 20 percent is stability right now maybe it is but i'll tell you alex one stock i'm particularly interested in is softbank the company just reported its biggest ever annual loss its vision fund is a giant venture capital fund and the problems with the vision fund seem to me to typify everything that's wrong with the tech sector right now intense speculation and just a failure to live up to sort of starry-eyed expectations for these companies. Give us some color around the company's latest loss. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I mean, SoftBank is a, another very good kind of symbolic way to understand what's going on in this market, especially around tech. So it, it's Vision Fund, which had become this $100 billion venture capital behemoth. Um, it actually has a Vision Fund, too, as well. And, Could I call it the Blurred Vision Fund? Um, blurred might be kind, but yes. Um, <laughs> okay. it's, uh, so it lost it, in its, in the earnings, um, and it's it largely trade SoftBank trades sort of around net asset values, largely around the vision fund. It also has some big holdings in other stocks outside the vision fund, including I think Alibaba, um, is outside the vision fund. So anyway, also not a winner. Also not a winner. So there's a whole lot of accounting going on and how they kind of mark their their holdings. But anyway, the vision fund itself, which has been around for five, six years and and single-handedly probably propped up private market values in the latest quarter said that its its holdings were down $27 billion, right? So that is a staggering number. Um, and Masayoshi-san, uh, who runs SoftBank and is sort of this... Um, you know, he, he, he alternates between being called a visionary and um, sort of, and I want to be kind on the other side of it, but a, um, let's say a uh, unrealistic risk taker um, is sort of said on the call today um, that he basically says that the market is in confusion. Um, and so that was his his way of that would seem it. to be an understatement. Yeah, and you know maybe that's partly uh, just his. I don't know what he would have how he would have described it in, in Japanese. I think that was his. I didn't listen to the call. I think that was how he talked about it in English. So I, I don't know. Maybe confusion. Maybe something's being lost in translation there. But I think his English is pretty good. So, um, you know. But anyway, this fund has been. It's become synonymous with with every piece of hype in in tech. And it's it, what's so fascinating to me is how. The thinking around SoftBank has changed multiple times over the last five years. You know, we've done a few, uh, at least one cover story on the company. We we were bullish on it, and then we looked terribly wrong before we looked terribly right again um, around the pandemic when all the you know the early, midway through the pandemic where a lot of its holdings started coming public. Uh, one of them being DoorDash, right? And if folks remember, there was that period. Um, I think it was what late 2020 
fall of 2020 when these when DoorDash, Airbnb, these companies started going public and they were doubling um, on their first day of trading. And that just went right. That just showed how great the Vision Funds bet had been. And now, of course, it's all it's all blowing up. Um, so that it's just it's it, it just shows that tech is the, these big bets still rarely work at the end of the day. And when you get one right, you do great, but it's very hard to get them right. And then I think one other thing I would just point out with the Vision Fund is something that they've often talked up and what made it so unique is there was a lot of diversification there, um, at least in terms of the number of investments, because they made the Vision Fund had something like 100 companies that it invested in right, as private as private companies initially. And it hasn't mattered at all that they had 100 companies in there because everything... Because they- because the key is, Alex, they were not diversified in the sense that none of them made money. It, exactly. And that's, that's again, symbolic for where we, are, where we are as a market right now. I mean, even the things that are making money, of course, are getting, are getting killed. But, but you're either profitable or you're not. And if you're unprofitable, you're down 50 to 100% or 50 to 90%, let's say, right now. Um, and so, yeah, 100 companies didn't make a, a, any difference. Um, for SoftBank, really, at the end of the day. So I think that's something to remember um, that. Uh, I think we're getting to the point where, where we're getting back to a market where cash flow matters. Yes. And it yeah. simply has not mattered for the past few years. And yeah. investors yeah. who forget that lesson I, often wind up in trouble. But yeah, now well, is time to look for cash flow. Yes. And, and I think actually it's, you know, you talked about some lessons. Maybe we can talk a bit about the, the tech trader column that our colleague Tay Kim wrote this past weekend. But, you know, I, I worked on that with Tay and he had some really good kind of reminders in there. Uh, first of all, he noted that all of it comes back to the diversification. All of the big hedge funds are getting killed because they all bet on the same companies, somewhat similar to the vision fund. Um, and so everyone just makes the same mistakes. Um and what Tay pointed out, not just around kind of the need for profits, but that people forgot that no, not, not, these shifts in, that we were seeing in the world were not permanent. It's, it's kind of surprising that, that we convinced ourselves that they were, given that, that COVID came along and, and changed everything we knew. And we decided that tech would now forever rule the world. And now we've learned that, that you know, the the revenue, the massive revenue gains coming from companies like Zoom and Peloton were never going to hold up. And even if they stayed, if Zoom was making 300% revenue gains at one point at the peak of the pandemic, um, that was how investors started extrapolating. They started expecting 300% at every quarter, and that drove the sales multiples to these crazy numbers. And so then when the growth started slowing, even if it was still growing at 50% or 30%, it didn't matter because it's all relative and everything just cratered. And so, um, you know, I guess, I guess the point that was, that was the most important lesson um, that Tay took from that, which is that you have to remember to never sort of take the current moment and, and assume that it's always going to be that way. Well, there's a terrible tendency on wall street to extrapolate the present. Yes. Right. And, and I think we're, we're paying, we're paying the price for that now. Uh, I the think they call present, it- and the present, I would just say the present, unlike maybe any time, at least in my memory, is, is, is so volatile because nothing is, because of the pandemic and perhaps because of technology and the way things change so fast, things, you know, things just change that much quicker now. So I think that extrapolation is that much more dangerous. 
But, you know, to flip that argument around, we shouldn't extrapolate that we're going to see losses forever either. No, it, it, totally. I, I, I would agree. So Right. And we should remember there are specific reasons that stocks are selling off. Interest rates are going up. The um, Fed is going to tighten liquidity. And that is not a good situation for stocks whose, whose earnings are coming far in the future. Right. Which right. gets me back to cash flows today. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk now about Disney. This is a company that that um, certainly is a lot more stable than some of the things that SoftBank invested in. It turns out on the bright side as well that Disney is not the next Netflix, meaning that its streaming service is actually growing, unlike Netflix, which gave pretty poor guidance when it reported recently. So let's see if you can unpack Earnings recent uh, Disney's recent earnings announcement and give us a um, give us an update on the streaming service and the rest of the company. Yeah, sure. So Disney reported uh, last night and um, it was a mixed bag, I would say. Right. So on the headline numbers, overall or numbers, they sort of missed at least earnings missed a little bit. Um, revenue, I think, was roughly in line. The stock is down almost three percent now this morning. But the but sort of probably the most important lesson to take is that streaming hasn't completely as a business hasn't completely fallen apart because disney plus actually added more subscribers than expected in the last quarter so they now have 100 disney plus now has about 138 million subscribers and that's up almost 8 million um from three months ago uh, analysts were expecting an addition an additional 5 million or so subscribers so that's a you know a, a healthy beat if you will um and uh and i think that's probably going to be good news for Disney and maybe good news for um, streaming in general to suggest that that whole thing hasn't completely fallen apart. I think it comes back to the point you were making, which is that, yes, streaming is a nice business, but companies have to find a way to do it profitably. Um, interestingly, Netflix is up um, almost 3% today. So I think that's the, I think investors are taking the Disney reminder that, um, Right. This industry is not dead yet. Not dead yet. I mean, there is this also this weird thing going on with the market this morning. Even with the Nasdaq being down, we're seeing a rally in, in the stuff that's been hit really particularly hard. Um, so, you know, maybe that's what's going on. I mean, Peloton's up 10% this morning. So I think that's part of what's going on. Uh, that's a little bit of a tangent. But um, but the Disney thing is interesting. I think what it also, the, one of the lessons to take from it is that streaming maybe isn't a good enough business Um on its own right now. And so in under well, Disney the, has a lot of other businesses. That's yeah. The and, the, and the park revenue is certainly coming back. It, it doubled in the latest quarter. It's back to 6 billion um, as a, a, on a quarterly basis for revenues for their park business. So, you know, that's looking healthier. And I think now the question is, can they get back to that original, the original um, hope for Disney was that they would have this kind of virtuous circle between Disney Plus and the parks, and that they would each drive each other, and that they could they could build a better business from a streaming perspective than what Netflix had. So I think maybe that's back on, um, and we can start thinking about that again. There was a really interesting. Um, I want just to point out the stock. So Disney is down thirty three percent year to date. That's less than half of Netflix declines because Netflix is down seventy one percent year to date. Um, so again, comes back to this diversification idea, even within a company as well, that it might be a lot better to, to have, Sorry, to have something. 
Oh, sorry, that was my Siri. It might be a lot better to have um, some ways to diversify uh, your own business. And Disney certainly does that. So um, do you want to talk about this interesting note, though, that came out yesterday? Um, about you anticipated my next question. Cool. So, um, you know, I think we have to take this with a grain of salt whenever a Wall Street analyst kind of talks up a potential merger for M&A or M&A activity. But uh, Rich Greenfield, who's a really prominent and longtime media analyst, yesterday kind of posed the question of should Disney buy Netflix? And um, I think that's a really it's a it's a it's a good argument, at least. And it's an interesting one to think about. So he says the way they could fund this is partially by selling Hulu, which Disney has like a, a half stake in or two thirds stake in. Um, which is another streaming service and use some of the funds to help finance a, a Netflix merger. What uh, would be the advantage of this merger? So, well, okay. So I think two things, the advantage maybe comes back to what we were, what I was just saying with the D Disney building this, this more diversified virtual virtuous uh, circle, right? Where um, they can use their parks and their, their family kind of, uh, programming to really help build a more loyal and stable business. Because I think while Netflix subscribers now may be showing that they're willing to turn off or cancel their subscription after their favorite, sh their favorite show is done, the Disney plus may not quite have that same tendency because families are relying on Disney plus content to just entertain their kids and um anyone who's watched the way kids um, take in streaming content have probably seen that they'll watch the same thing over and over again there's not this same need for new content as just content that they're familiar with and they like and so that would lead you to think disney plus is going to have less churn over time than netflix and if you have less churn you have less need to kind of throw quite as much money every quarter into new content right netflix has had to constantly feed it feed this beast and it just is costing them billions and billions of dollars and that of course looks worse in an environment where investors want to see profits so two questions related do you think reed hastings would sell netflix and what are the odds that you put on a deal so, okay, odds on the deal, I don't know, not very high. Okay, and that answers the first question. 15%, 15%, but I think, again, 20 but it's fun to, it's interesting to think about, would Reed Hastings sell? I mean, that's what, that's what makes this so fascinating, right? Because a few months ago, there's no shot at Reed Hastings selling this business. But now you sort of start to wonder, I mean, could his hand, could, could, could he be forced to? Um, and I think it's now an open question. Uh, you know, uh, Rich Greenfield points out that uh, Netflix now has an enterprise value of about $90 billion. So it's still big, but Disney has an, an enterprise value of $250 billion. And well, it could digest Netflix. It could digest it. And, and, and by the way, we I remember when we wrote our story a couple of years ago when Netflix passed Disney in value. So again, it's just such an amazing turn of events here um, and, and should be a reminder for Tesla investors. It should be a reminder for fintech investors. It should be a reminder for any investor that's betting on these disruptors that, you know, as good as the, the disruption looks right now, until the company becomes a true profit generator, and maybe Tesla is is there at this point, but until a company becomes- but There's a lot of competition coming. There's a lot of competition coming. And, um, you know, don't, like we said, don't, don't take the present 
sentiment and, and extrapolate it too far into the future. I think that's the theme of the call and the theme of this market. So speaking of the present sentiment, Alex, I cannot keep my eyes off the crypto market. I'm not exactly sure I understand it, but Bitcoin has plunged. Tether has become untethered. What is going on in the Wild West out there? And more important, why should ordinary investors care about what's happening with the crypto crazies, as I sometimes call them? Yeah, and I wish I understood this better, too. I mean, part of my view around crypto is I, I've never quite been able to build fundamental understanding of it and maybe it's because i'm not smart enough i doubt that (laughs) maybe it's because it just has never quite made a ton of sense that didn't stop all this money from flowing into it and so now it's falling apart as you said now maybe bitcoin becomes the one crypto that still works i don't know i mean i'm very skeptical it's fallen from what sixty thousand to twenty seven thousand um right and then you mentioned Tether, which is one of these stable coins. And just some quick explainer, I'll do the best I can. You know, stable coins basically were these digital assets that were pegged to trade at the dollar. And so they would never gain or lose value. And you would use them as sort of a means of transaction for transactions. There's trading in stable coins. One of our colleagues described it as sort of a digital money market of sorts. Um, and now it's now they're breaking the buck. And so that leads to the question, well, if they don't work, what does that mean for crypto? Um, you know, and, and, and Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies directly have not been good. They're not they're not very stable stores of value. So they're not good for actually transacting, um, and which was maybe I would think one of the original purposes behind crypto. And so you have anyway, everything is sort of. Um, Falling apart. And I, and in terms of why, why the regular investor would care, I'm guessing we have some listeners who have, you know, have never touched crypto or stable coins and they're saying, so does this matter for me? And I I think, I I don't think there's a a ton of systemic risk that goes beyond just this world of crypto. So if you've stayed kind of away from it, I think, you know, you're not, it's not going to change your portfolio. The problem is that I think that it just feeds on itself when it comes to our um, our sentiment and our, our, our willingness to take risks. And, and at the end of the day, what that means for the multiples that we're willing to pay for any sort of risk asset, which you know, under which you know you have to include tech stocks. So I, I somehow think of Bitcoin a bit as the vision fund of the crypto market. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Right. It's certainly it's a, it's hard, a tremendous bet on something, but yeah, and certainly not. And we talked about diversification, even less diversified. Right. right. Um, yeah, I think that's that's that could be one way to think about it. Um, so it's a trading um, asset at yeah, the moment. It, it's it's not, yeah, right. We, and it's not doing it. You can't really buy anything with it in a big way. Yeah. So I want to. Um, do an interesting exercise next. I want to look at tech stocks that have fallen the most and tech stocks that have fallen the least. And sure. we'll try to see if we can understand the difference between them. So yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. You probably, uh, you know, I did, I did come up, come prepared with that, with, with that homework. Um, and uh, I'll give a few names. First, let's do the ones down the most, which no one's going to be surprised by. Peloton is down 90% from its highs. Now, I can't say that's among every tech stock, but it's from the long list of tech stocks that I follow. 
um, on a daily basis. Peloton is at the top of the list, down 90%. AMC Entertainment can argue whether it's a tech stock, but it was certainly one of these meme stocks, is down 86% from its highs. So those two are down the most. Um, so you have sort of two, two, um, two stories within those two names. Peloton obviously was the ultimate stay-at-home stock. AMC Entertainment was the ultimate meme stock that was trading on you know, totally disconnected from any sort of fundamentals. Uh, so I think those are two important names and tells you a lot. And then on the um, on the what's done best side, the tech stock I found that is that has done best is down 8.8%. Um, it's IBM. It Glad just, we had a cover story on that. We did. So I, you know, while it hasn't held, it, it hasn't made you money, um, although I, I'm not sure where it's exactly is from the cover story, but it has lost you far less money um, from its, uh, that, those numbers, by the way, are from the, the stock's peaks. So um, IBM is down 8.8% from its peak. That sounds pretty good right now, right? And it kind of yeah. tells you everything. Right. IBM, I mean, what more do you, is it like the oldest tech stock that, that we have? Right. I mean, that's not like rocket science. It's almost amazing that like, had you just put your money in the oldest tech stock there was and shorted the newest tech stocks there were, you would have, You'd be doing okay right now, and probably I guess I'd call it a def- I'd call it a defensive name in tech right now. But you sure would missed a lot of opportunity on the upside. That's true. Very good You've point. Done that two so, years ago. Exactly, you're right. And then just a couple other names. The other the other two at the top of my um, best performing list are Hewlett Packard Enterprise, which is down 13, percent and its one time uh, corporate sibling HP Inc., which is down 14. Uh, percent HP Enterprise is more of kind of a name that does networking and services for, for businesses. HP Inc. is the one that makes uh, PCs and printers. Um, and that's actually held up decently well, uh, both from during the pandemic when they were selling to consumers and kind of during the reopening when they've been selling to businesses. So um, there you go. Two other very original Silicon Valley names uh, are doing well. Well, it's it's the old school names that are holding up better, certainly this time around. Yeah. So I want to go to some listener questions, Alex. We have a number of questions about NVIDIA, which was the subject of um, a couple pieces by Tay Kim, one of our tech writers. He was skeptical on the stock, worried about headwinds. And I'm just going to bundle the questions together. Maybe you can summarize for listeners what Tay's argument was and where he sees things heading from here. Yeah. So I would never disagree with Tay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Although I'm glad glad he's on our staff. But we do have, uh, we do have some fun conversations and debates at times, but I think Tay really knows chips well. And basically with NVIDIA. So first of all, let's, I think we first need to just talk about the fact that the reason tech stocks are going down right now at the end of the day, fundamentals and earnings certainly aren't helping and, and ha- what they're reporting, but this is about resetting valuations. Um, and so NVIDIA has a ways, had a ways to go from that perspective. Um, and then, you know, the other issue for NVIDIA uh, is just the broader chip market and what they were selling into and the fact that demand was so high for these chip um, chip makers that there was some similar extrapolation of the present where they just had to keep making them. And now you may have this period of inventory overhangs um, for the, the the companies that sell directly to consumers of, you know, of, of products. And then that's going to be very problematic for the actual companies that make the chips. And so, and NVIDIA doesn't have a lot of downside protection given 
given how far it's been up and what its multiple is. Um, and I think that's kind of at the core of the, the problems for, for NVIDIA. Um, we've talked a little bit before about the difference between NVIDIA and Intel. Um, but, you know, maybe uh, I'll just look quickly now where Intel is trading. Um, you know, Intel's another one that it's older and held up better. And it trades at 12 times next year's earnings, whereas NVIDIA, let's see, trades at uh, certainly much cheaper than it was, but it trades at 24 times earnings. Mm -hmm. So it's getting cheaper, actually, but it's still double what Intel trades at. Mm -hmm. So message here is when Takeum writes about semiconductor stocks, pay attention. Yeah, I think it's worth worth watching. He was also bullish on uh, electronic arts over the weekend um, in his latest in his recent column, and that stock was up, I think, ten percent almost yesterday. So interesting. Give him a little shout out. I, I guess the market's paying attention to Tay. So Majid asks, with Amazon down forty one percent as of May 9th from its fifty two week high, how do you look about the, how do you look at Amazon now? Do you consider it a value stock or a value trap? question. Yeah, great question. Um, and it feels like Amazon is a stock you want to own for the long term. So I will just start with that. Um, but I don't I wouldn't use the word value, um, which which maybe is the way I can get out of answering whether it's a value stock or a value trap. <laughs> I would just say it's not a value. Um, because and I was just looking at some of the, the, the multiples here. Um, Amazon still trades for about 40 times next year's earnings. And so I think you know, for it to come into sort of a market multiple around 20 times, which maybe is actually higher, is probably too high for the market multiple right now. Earnings would have to double next year um, for for the PE, assume that, assuming the multiple doesn't change, would have earnings would have to double for the PE to come even close to a market multiple, of, you know, around 20. Um, and right now, Wall Street is expecting 66% growth for 2024, which would become the forward, kind of the forward multiple by next year, right? So 66% um, growth is still pretty good, but it's not enough to get it into, you know, market multiple um, territory. So I think that's one way to think about it. And then from a revenue perspective, Amazon's just looking far more ordinary right now. I mean, growth... Um, analysts are expecting growth in the coming years, sort of in the mid-teens. Um, so it's good, but it's not kind of the Amazon of old. Now, maybe e-commerce turns around. Maybe Amazon finds a way to really build out one of its growing businesses, whether it's advertising, whether it's logistics, um, and, and sort of gets that growth restarted again. But right now, it's become what's what's growing earnings is, is the cloud. And so they've become sort of a much more of a, I never thought you would say this about Amazon, but sort of more of a one trick pony. Um, so that's, I think that's something to keep in mind. So neither value stock nor value trap, but something to own for the long haul. I think so. Have so, I summarized that well? I'm, yes. And maybe that's too much of a cop out, but that's, that's what I'm going with. All right. We'll, we'll take it. I'm going to close with your Chico's question because it seems very appropriate today. All of my tech stocks, Yoshiko says, are down, and I just can't sell at the moment. Is there any chance of recovering? I think that's the million-dollar question here. Yeah, right. I mean, look, we talked about the Nasdaq is down 30%. Probably a lot of your holdings, if you're holding individual stocks, are down 50% plus. It does. It seems very tough to sell right now. Um, you know, I guess you could sell for some, take some tax losses and find other things to go into. I'm not even sure. You want to go into energy now? I, I think that seems 
risky given the run. that it's already had. So I wouldn't be pushing to sell most of your tech holdings right now. The only issue is, look, if, if we're starting to hear more and more comparisons to the dot-com bust um, and tech did eventually recover, um, but it took it took the Nasdaq 15 years to recover from 2000 to 2015, basically. So I don't I don't know that there are going to be any quick fixes here. I'd feel awfully I'd feel very good, you know, owning big tech now. Alphabet trades at like 15 or 14 times earnings last I looked. That does seem like a value stock, by the way. Um, so I think the lesson is you just you hold on to the the names you know well, um, and and you maybe you maybe you do pare down on some of these faster growing or once faster growing names that don't have profits because it, I don't know how much better it gets for um, for a company like Peloton at this point. Well, we know that markets rebound. We just don't know the timing. So. Yeah, right, right. But also many things are a lot cheaper today than they had been. So that's the that's the sunny side of a pretty dark season. Yeah. And I will say that all each of these days we seem to be um, when I look at sort of the various uh, factoids that for the market, we, we keep getting these March 2020 keeps coming up in terms of how large the the sell offs are like the worst three days, the worst four days since March 2020. Now, COVID was an unusual time. But um, once you start comparing it to the sell off of March 2020, we know it, it didn't take long once you got those big 30%, 40% losses for the market to not just recover, but go on a new a new rally. Um, so maybe that's the, that's the optimistic take. Okay. No predictions necessarily, but all things to keep in mind. Thanks a lot, Alex, for sharing your insights today. Sure. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And tomorrow on Barron's Live, IBD's Alyssa Corum and Justin Nielsen will debunk stock market myths and superstitions. The market action in 2022 might seem like a horror show. I think we confirmed that today. But they will offer actionable takeaways and insights to help you steer clear of some common pitfalls. Stay well, everyone. Have a good day, and thanks for tuning in. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.